Hey, folks, don't forget to get some of the new WTF cap merch at podswag.com slash WTF. It's a new take on our original cap merch, this time featuring Buster and Sammy. But these shirts are in full color. Stickers, tank tops, mugs. Go get some swag. And some of the classic WTF merch is 30% off right now. So uh, that's all at podswag.com slash WTF or click merch at WTFpod.com. All right? Lock the gates! All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucknicks? What the fucktopians? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. What's happening? What is happening? Are we okay? How, how's it going? What time is it? You guys got to go? You going to hang out for a minute? How much time you got? You got a little bit? I got uh, my friend uh, Sovereign Sire is on the show today. I've known her for years. She's open for me many times. She's funny. She's sharp. She's a writer. She's, uh, I don't know how to, like, it's an interesting conversation to have because of the way people see porn. Like, how do you see porn? You know, it's a job. It's a job, and it's a, it's a specific type of entertainer. That's what I'd like to think of it as. It's a, it's a very specific type of entertainer. you got to be all in, you know, to do that type of entertaining. And uh, But for the last year or so, she's been primarily uh, only fansing it. But she's been working on this pilot and working on this show idea with uh, my old buddy Pete Berg, who's been on this show. And they've been uh, fleshing it out. And she uh, opened for me a couple weeks ago at Dynasty Typewriter. So, yeah, so this is it. I don't know how you feel about porn. I don't know where you're, you know, whether, you know, how do you frame it, man? I personally, I was brought up on old school porn. So I, you know, I saw it too young. I judged myself against it. I've talked about this before many times. I don't necessarily think porn is great to see when you're 15 uh, because then you're sort of like, you know, it's it. You've you've got a a a barometer by which to judge yourself and your sexual uh, sort of uh, activity against. And it's you know I, I I I don't know if I've ever made the mark, but I don't know if that's important. Maybe I have. I I don't know if it's. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is you should probably wait till you're a little older to take it in. <laughs> Man, I do love telling that story though. It was, it, I, I think it was traumatizing, but I put myself through it. And it was, uh, it was, it was that we used to go to the naked eye. Was that what it's called? Or the, the pyramid? It was the pyramid theater. I think this is in one of my books, but I don't know. Maybe I feel like revisiting it for you, me and my buddies. It's not really, it's not a group of guy activity. You know, porn is a solo endeavor, really, unless you're watching it with your partner uh, to uh, get things started or, or you know, whatever. Hey, man, again, no judges. But we used to have nothing to do. We had our fake IDs. And I just remember we get, we one time, it must have been one time, maybe twice, because I remember it specifically. We went to this place. It was right on, right off of Central near... Uh, Maybe Gerard was the Pyramid Theater, old school, it was late 70s, back when, you know, you didn't have the Betamaxes and people still had to go out into the world to do the porn thing. They had to go out 
to sit out in public in a theater to jerk off to porn. And that was what you did there, I guess. But we were just a bunch of drunk high school kids, and we got in. I just remember you went around back, and there was a beaded curtain. And in the in the front of this place, before you got into the theater, there was something called the you know body painting, live body painting. I don't know what was going on. I just know we were drunk, and we go into this fucking gross theater. And those theaters never really, especially the ones that weren't originally theaters. You know, the seats were in kind of weird places. The rows were bolted to the floor, kind of off. It didn't have a feeling like a movie theater. And I just remember like. You know, it was me and Bob, David. I don't remember. I think there was one other dude. But I just remember the time we went there, there was like an old couple, like, you know, grandparents old, (laughs) sitting in front of us. And Bob, you know, whispers to me, my grandparents are here. And I I remember laughing and drunken laughing. So then the movie starts. And this is like, I had seen, you know, photographic depictions of sex in porn. So I knew where everything went. But I hadn't seen much of the the sort of live action stuff. And I've tracked this movie down. Again, I feel like I've told this story before, but it's okay. Because this is one of the first times I experienced seeing sex, live action sex. And all I remember is a guy on a bus gets off a bus in a town, meets a girl, a woman. She takes him home and they're having sex. And tattooed on her stomach over her vagina is the face of the devil. And her vagina is sort of the beard and mouth of the devil. And he's having sex with her. And she's saying, fuck me. Fuck the devil. Fuck me. Fuck the devil. And I was like, wow. So that's a lot to take in. And I, is, this, is this how it's going to be all the time? Or no, this is unique, right? This situation and then, like, I just remember it ends with, it was a cult. There's a, a platform, and uh, there's a bunch of people wearing, like, uh, hooded uniform, like, hooded outfits, like, druids around this platform. And on the platform, there's a, a woman on all fours with a candle sticking out of her ass that's lit. And all the people around the table were chanting, all hail Uranus, all hail Uranus. And I was like, all right, so... This is what sex is. Fuck me, fuck the devil, all hail Uranus. Okay, good. I'm good. I got it. It's in my memory. Boy, is it burned in there. Burned into my fucking memory. But I feel bad talking all the porn talk because Sav is getting out, man. She's getting out, and I hope she does, and I'm 100% behind her. She's funny. She's smart. She's writing. I did a read-through of this script that she's working on trying to sell and it's great and i just uh look man i'm not saying that porn is bad but you know it's something that you should uh you should get out when you can i think even if it's your choice it doesn't seem like you know it seems like uh you do it for a while you know what i'm saying i I haven't done it maybe i should look into it should I get into porn? I think it's too late. Isn't it too late for me to get into porn? Is there such thing as a uh, a DILF? There must be, right? Am I a... <laughs> Come on. Stop it. Stop it. This is not about that. All right? Job is a job. Right? I mean, on some level, who doesn't get fucked at work? Am I right? Let's just... This is me 
talking to my friend Sovereign Sire uh, about her comedy, her writing, uh, her attitudes about the the adult sex work biz um, and her life. How long have I known you? Actually, I was going to say, I, lo- I actually knew that we met in July. I don't know why I remembered that. Really? I, I have a memory like an elephant for shit. Mm. But for some reason, I've, I've, I remembered that we met in July. and July 2014. And I looked it up. It's like to the day almost. Of today? That, of today. Come on. That we met. That's crazy. Yeah. Like we, well, we were online friends for about like six months or so. Right, then, but I can't. I like. I and then I, you're like, do you want to have coffee? And then that was in. And I like look. I, I saw it in my Twitter DMs, yeah. and I was like, that we had been having these long conversations for a long time about and comedy. Then, yeah, I think so. Just like whatever, just kind of just talking, and then um, yeah, yeah, and that was like. So that was like around July. So of it's 2014. Like 2014, and then I came over and we had coffee. But you, yeah. I didn't. I'd never listened to the podcast. I'd never listened to a podcast. Yeah. I hadn't listened to your podcast. Yeah. I didn't realize that your podcast was like important to people or whatever. And so you were you were showing me around your house. Yeah. And I'll always remember it because you took me into your podcast studio. Into the garage. And you're like like a little kid that's just like, like really proud of their is. shit. You're like, and here's where the magic happens. And I'm just sitting there like Okay. That's really cool, Mark. <laughs> you have all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I I I was completely but I was trying I to remember why. I mean, like I was, I was trying to remember the, ins, the the beginning of it because I didn't know your work, but I knew some for some reason you were connected to comedians or you wanted to do comedy. I don't remember. Like I wasn't like, oh my god, it's the porn lady, whose uh, whose stuff I watch. It wasn't like that. I've had that happen before. <laughs> I, I've seen porn people. Like I knew years ago. I knew this. <laughs> I used to I used to tell that story on stage. Like there was a couple of porn actresses I knew when I was a younger person from watching them, and mm-hmm. I saw one at the airport. And I did I did not know what to do, and I because I, I really wanted to say, you know, I, I you know I really enjoy your work. <laughs> but what is that? It's just like it, I mean, know. it's it's awkward. Um, like I don't think of myself as a public person per se, and certainly not famous. But yeah. at the same time, you know. If I go look up the stats on stuff like Pornhub, yeah. like 11 million plus people have watched my work. And you can look up your stats on Pornhub? I mean, a lot of those places will just tell you like how many views a performer has oh. on the, the site. And they'll tell anybody that? Or? Yeah. Oh, okay. And, and if I go and look around different tube sites and start doing the math, I'm oh, like, yeah, right, right, that's, right. that's a lot of eyeballs. Yeah. Um, but So you don't think of yourself as a public person, but you know a lot of people have seen you do stuff yeah and it's it's a different kind of celebrity because people don't come up to you because if they come up to you and say hi what they're and what they're also saying is yeah. i've jacked off to you well, no, that was and the... now we're talking about you jacking off right. and your jacking yeah. off habits yeah. which is you know really I, inappropriate i'm trying to even <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to arc the conversation because you know where we're at now i mean after you've been telling me you're going to get out of porn for at least Six of the years I've known you, yeah, that there is, uh, it, it, there this seems to be really happening. So I think it's sort of interesting to you know kind of go back. So 
the public person talking about jerking off, but the idea that it's a job, I think, is what people have a hard time with. Yeah, they do. You know, that like, you know, and I, we've sort of talked about it privately before that the, on some level, because you're this fantasy object and you do that as a job that you don't get. It's like you don't get respect from any quarter of the culture. Well, I mean, it, it really is because, you know, someone will say, well, you're not a real actress. And I was like, well, you're watching the wrong performances. <laughs> yeah. And then that same person asked, like, how many of the orgasms in porn are real? And I said, zero percent. Zero percent are real. Wait, so really? that, but it's like the same person was like, "You're an amazing. You're like not a real actress." Uh-huh. And then turned around and asked how many of the orgasms in porn are real, and was shocked to find out zero. And I was like, "So I guess we actually are Pretty- very good actresses, <laughs> because <laughs> here we are." Because that question is is uh, uh, eternal. Well, and it's not to say that what's going on on camera doesn't feel good, mm. but. I mean, the circumstances, if any, if you've ever been with a woman, which I know you have, mm. um, making a woman come is a lot of work, and she still has to kind of want to do it. She has to really want to do it yes. for it to happen. Yeah. And so in a scenario on a set where you're partnered with someone that you were booked with, that you didn't pick out yourself, that you're probably not attracted to, yeah. you're surrounded by people, you're doing a scenario that may or may not turn you on. Like, because right. you're there doing a job. So you, maybe you're doing a scene where you're playing a student or a teacher, and that's something that is not a fantasy for you. Or maybe it's a real turnoff for there, you, but you've got to stay in character because you were hired today to do that fantasy, whether or not and, that turns and, you on. And in between takes, isn't it like just some dude just standing there like jerking off, trying to keep his heart on kind of deal? I mean, it depends. You know, I mean, some I, some are, performers try to generate chemistry and they try to keep it going and they try to keep it as authentic as it can be given the circumstances but the circumstances make it hard i can't believe i've never like been to well yeah i can what am i saying like why haven't i been to a porn set you know what i mean like how come that's not my life i mean i knew uh yeah it was never that was not a thing there's no field trips yeah and, and we've become increasingly cloistered as the, the porn community? Yeah. I mean, the relationship between porn and mainstream has become just increasingly fraught in terms of... Uh, I, I think it used to be that that the adult side of things um, really courted the validation of mainstream. And so whenever a mainstream project wanted to do a documentary about porn or yeah. wanted to come on set because they're making a movie about porn, right. um, porn people would be really receptive to that because we crave that kind of validation or acknowledgement that we are sort of a legitimate uh, site of labor and that our stories are important. Right. You know, um, and they are. Yeah. But I think we've reached like sort of a nadir of understanding that unless that all of these projects are inevitably geared towards having a very specific narrative about our our labor. Which is what? That it's inevitably horrible, exploitative, that no and one- you're all broken. All broken. No one can come out of it yeah. happy. <laughs> um, or if someone comes out of it, they have to do so with the complete um, disavowal of oh, yeah. the and, industry as a whole. And, and contrition and, of some kind. Yeah. Like, I'm a different person. I was lost. It was in PTSD. Yep. I was being held hostage. Yeah. Uh. I mean, it's it's very much goes back to sort of this American cultural- attitude that's very puritanical, which you see it in cancel culture, too, which is there must be a confession of guilt. 
then there must be like an auto de fe, like a sort of, you know, a, the walk of shame. Yeah. That, that, Scarlet A. Yeah. I mean, so we're, we're still very much well, let's, that culture. Yeah, that, that's true. But I felt like there was a minute there uh, where porn was like it seemingly was like integrating, you know, kind of uh, a lot into mainstream culture. Like there was a point there was a point with Internet porn where it was so common that it was a conversation everywhere and that like it became so uh, what's the word I want? It's widespread that it wasn't there was no mystique to it anymore. Well, I think that was social media. Yeah. And so I would point that at around 2009. Um, yeah. A lot of people would attribute it to Sasha Gray. I have my theory around it, and it's a theory because I'm not a scholar, yeah. but I, it has to do with the rise of social media and the streaming of porn. Yeah. So it's, it's omnipresence and it's ubiquity, um, coupled with social media getting everyone online, you know, because mm. people forget that before social media, it was mainly forums and websites. And so if you were really into something, you had to go to a forum or a bulletin board. And you or still a had to get board. the DVDs. Yeah. But like not even just for porn. I mean, for anything. Yeah. It's like there was no social media. People have been with it so long. Right. They've forgotten that there was a time when in order to find people that shared specific interests and to share content like bootleg recordings from, you know, yeah. Fleetwood Mac concerts or whatever your thing was that you were sure. trying to do, you had to go find these message Zeppelin boards. There was Live seventy three. Yeah. Like yeah. there there weren't like there wasn't a hub like Twitter yeah. where, yeah. you know you could just put it out there. But I think the main thing that happened is there was and I think this happened across all inter- industries, is yeah. that when the tech for creating art, whether it was like a Adobe audition or podcasts, yeah. or Ableton Live, or um, cell phone, like camera phones, right? right? That that this technology suddenly emerged that could allow any creator to upload their content, create their content on par with what before had been these super professionals. Yeah. Um, and then being able to upload it to places like YouTube, where there was suddenly a sort of social media hub. Yeah. So you had... There was this moment where anyone could kind of make the content and everyone could network with each other and have a social media presence and everyone was sharing this stuff. And so you had um, before that, especially in porn, it was very corporate, which is there were contract girls and then there were gonzo girls. And the contract girls had these very curated images. You know, they were put through media training. I mean, contract girls with a company? Yeah. One so of the with like, three or four? Yeah, like Digital Playground or Wicked or Vivid. Vivid yeah. yeah. Right. And so those girls might get some kind of media training. They would be very heavily branded. Yeah. Um, I remember the boxes. Yeah. yeah. And those boxes, I had a director tell me that they would spend like 20, 30 grand on a box cover shoot. Like, yeah. that's how important they were. Um. And part of that meant that, you know, there wasn't just direct access to the girls. And especially right. like with music or acting or anything else, right? There was just no direct access Period. Yeah, this, to anybody. Uh, the, the age of boundaryless kind of insanity is yeah. it's the worst. Which if is, somebody wants to get in touch with you, they will and they can. If they're yeah. persistent, they'll find you. They'll track you down somehow. Yeah. And, and everyone's so insecure and needy and kind of like egotistical that like they say that if... The weird thing about being, and I'm sure, well, you deal with it because it's actually part of your job, but you don't want to deal with that stuff. But if they catch you on the right day, you're going to respond to an email, even though you're not, you shouldn't. Oh, yeah. But you're just sort of one day, you're like, no, good. Well, like also, it's it's removed the part of you that even thinks about it. I have, like across social media, I have maybe a million, two million followers, right? And Mm. 
I'll go on and be posting pictures of my dog or my breakfast or my my latest thoughts on abortion or whatever without really considering how wide of an audience yeah. I'm sending that message to. Yeah. Or who or where they're going to send it. Yeah. Um, but so the thing is, I think for porn girls, the thing that it really helped in terms of the rights of sex workers and the humanization and destigmatization of porn yeah. was that girls suddenly could run their own brands. Right. They were building their own brands and they were going on Twitter and Tumblr and these places and they were building up their own following of people. As the corporate production houses were kind of falling, right? Yeah. And right. so it was the first time that consumers were getting to view the performers as human beings. Yeah, they were not these carefully curated. Well, you were being human. Yeah. 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 <laughs> And that really did a lot to Mm. kind of mainstream porn because all these, and then also um, during the Tumblr era and there was the emergence of Sasha Gray, who was a new kind of porn star because she had opinions and ideas and vocalized them and, you know, um, what happened to her? She's still around. I mean, she, she retired in I think like 2010 or 2011, but she's now a very wholesome Twitch streamer. She does a lot of cooking and gaming on Twitch and still has a really rabid following. Um, no self? No more? No. She seems, to, she seems to have landed on her feet and is doing well for herself. Well, let's, like, let's go back. How long have you been in California? I moved here in 2011, 2012. Where'd you grow up? So I grew up in Fresno, California, yeah, Central Valley. Yeah, Fresno. And, yeah. and you st- your mom's still there. No, she's in Riverside. Who's in Fresno? Uh, my adoptive father. Your adoptive I have two dads. Two dads. So, real dad in like. Well, the real dad is the adoptive dad. And then uh, the... <laughs> oh, really? I have a biological father who was always he. Him and my mom divorced before I was born, hmm. and I've always known who he is. Yeah. And he's, I think, total in life. We've maybe spent three months together. I mean, I would, it was a place I would go visit for like a week or two every summer to right. whatever. Identify and your father. I mean, biological. He, I mean, he definitely was the reason I started doing stand up. He was, he had a really, he had a passion for stand up comp. He loved it. So he would watch Lenny Bruce and, and Bill Hicks and, and uh, Richard Pryor and all like uh, like those albums, yeah, were like there. were always playing. He was always doing bits. So I think I immediately kind of got interested in comedy because it was a way that we could connect, and it was a way to feel connected to him. When you were a kid, yeah, when I was really little. So I would like memorize the jokes too, and I would watch all this stuff. Which is, he's like, is he out in the desert or something? He's he lives in Arizona now, right? But for for the most part, I grew up. Be, they, he is was in Ashland, Oregon, and then in Seattle. What, what and, is he like? Off the grid guy? No, oh, okay. no. He's just he's just old and retired. <laughs> Wait a minute. Okay, I think of Oregon and Arizona. It's like it seems like a type of person. I mean, it is. Was he uh, like a hippie dude or no? Well, uh, him and my mom were both heroin addicts. That's how they met. It was a love story. Oh, um, wow. Where was this? <laughs> where did they Where did they uh, have that courtship? Okay. <laughs> this is actually one of my favorite stories. It's yeah. very romantic. That's great. Uh, my mom was 17 and dropped acid. She was living in New York and she dropped acid mm-hmm. and she had this vision that Jesus Christ was in San Quentin Penitentiary under uh-huh. the name like Charles something uh-huh. and um and so she decided she was gonna go talk to god she had some questions she's she gonna, gonna go to san she's quentin she's gonna san quentin and visit jesus uh-huh. so she hitchhiked from new york 
to... But didn't she come down at some point and realize, like, the fuck am I doing? You know, my mom is uh, committed, committed, if anything. You know, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. you got to see it through. Yeah, got to see sure, it through. Sure. Okay. Um, so she hitchhiked across uh, the country and she made it as far as uh, Nevada. And then she got picked up by a trucker yeah. and they ended up going down this dark lane and the trucker tried to make a pass at her and she was not having it and so he kicked her out at the side of the road in the middle of the night pitch black no freeway lights nothing mm. and she just kind of stood in the dark for a really long time waiting to see what was going to happen to her next yeah and then she describes it as this pair of headlights emerged and like was coming toward her and they hit a sign behind her that lit up the reflective sign and it said hallelujah junction yeah and she was like we're on our way <laughs> yeah so it was two couples that were on honeymoon that were like on their way to lake tahoe i guess uh-huh they picked her up felt really bad for her yeah and she uh the sad hippie girl yeah uh-huh. and so they pulled their money together and were, gave her money to get a bus ticket and the nearest place she could get to was reno nevada and so she took the bus, the yeah. Greyhound, to Reno, Nevada, got off the bus and was told she should go work at one of the casinos, apply for work there. So she walked in. So she had to have been older. Now I'm thinking like she had to have been older than 17. Yeah. She would have to have been old enough to work in the casino. She, she was young. But yeah, she did get a job there. She was there as a, yeah. a blackjack dealer. Yeah. Um, so she got a job as a blackjack dealer there. Yeah. And then one day... My dad came in yeah. and she was like, so my mom tells me that she, she would constantly go on these attempts to get clean off so of she's, drugs. But she's not on dope yet? No, she was. Oh, she was like. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. So she's a blackjack dealer with a habit. Oh, yeah. Oh. But she's like, I would. Con- she would tell me that she would constantly do these things where she would put herself in scenarios in which getting drugs was very difficult as oh, to try th- to, as an attempt to, yeah, to yeah. quit. And she's so like, what are, we, are we in the 80s here or where are we? This is the 70s. Okay. Late 70s. Yeah. And um, so my dad walked in and was asked for a job application. And she was like, and, you know, I just saw him and I just could immediately tell that he knew where to get heroin. <laughs> That was love at first sight. <laughs> and so yeah. she didn't see him for a while um, around the casino, and she said there was a break room. Yeah. And uh, one day she was in the break room taking a nap, and she woke up, and my dad was in there watching her. Apparently, he had gotten a job as a short order cook at the casino. Uh-huh. And um, she said, like, uh, they started hanging out and doing drugs together, and like two weeks later, he asked if he could move in with her, and she said, I can't live with anyone I'm not married to. I'm an old fashioned girl. And so he went to Woolworths and bought like two brass rings and they went and got married at the courthouse and they stayed married for like seven or eight years. Really? Yeah. They ended up moving up together to Oregon. Is that when um, your brother's older? Yeah. So they had him first? They had him. Yeah. yeah. And then with when by the time they had me, they were already kind of done with each other. Um, and were they she sober? She she got sober for me. Uh-huh. She was She had tried to get sober several times. Um, at the time that they divorced, my dad had been put in like a recovery, kind of a halfway house type situation because he had, he was like strong arming and doing like robberies and stuff. And Uh like the, this is all, it's getting mixed up, but there was something around like he was like doing a robbery or a burglary and like dropped a pill bottle that had his name and address on it. And like the one, the one pill bottle he had that was actually a legit prescription. Yeah, and then got busted for it. And then it was like he had tried to escape jail one time, and like by trying to jump out the window. And then he was like in the hospital in a coma, and um, his the 
the only way that she found out was because these nuns, it was a Catholic hospital yeah. that he ended up at. And these nuns that used to go to, like, they were at this faith healers compound in the mountains in Oregon. What? And, um, Who your folks were? Yeah. And these nuns would Who like the, come out there all the time trying to like proselytize or whatever. Why were they at a faith healers compound? Cheap rent. That's what she said. Oh, oh. She, they she, weren't part she of it. in the house. Yeah. Oh. Like, so, so they the were kind of in a cult? Yeah, kind of. Uh-huh. I think. Yeah. I don't, I haven't. I don't There's know. no clarification. Yeah. How how is this not the story you're telling? Where where is this book? Where's this fucking movie? I mean, it's her story. But anyway, so she didn't know my dad had kind of gone missing and uh. she didn't know like what or no, he, she knew he was in jail. Right. But oh, these good, nuns right. that like would go to this compound and kind of try to, to get people, people out yeah. recognized they were at the hospital yeah. and like recognized that this was her husband mm. was and that they that they had a young child yeah. and uh so the the nuns basically went and told her like he's like in a coma? he's in a coma and she's like you know your dad was such a good con man she's like that i walked into that hospital room and she's like you know he looked like wax like waxy like yeah. he looked yeah. out and she's like and i walked up to him and i was just like johnny johnny like are you faking it like if you're faking it just like just like Blink twice, like she, like she was, she was convinced that like it wasn't real. Like she was like, she's like he was that he was that charming and he was that good. Wow, yeah. What would have been the end of what was that? What was the goal of that griff though? <laughs> Just to lay down for a while, get the drugs, be on an <laughs> <No>. IV. <laughs> but he, like my dad has always been this very charming kind of womanizer type guy. There was he. He ended up getting into like what they call now, I guess what they would call it is a diversion program mm. where um, was able to negotiate downtime in exchange for going into rehab. Yeah. And, but that rehab was like a lockdown kind of place. Uh-huh. And it was run by this woman. And the way my mom tells the story. Yeah. And I feel like nowadays I have to caveat everything with like, here's what I was told. Right. Sure. Of course. Um, the way my mom tells the story is that the woman that directed this program decided that the only way that they could get that that my dad could get sober as if he divorced my mom and so was trying to make it like this condition of him getting into the diversion program that he had to agree to divorce why would they my do that mom. and my mom said that it was like the public defender was the one that actually like went to bat and was like you can't you can't make Force that a somebody. condition yeah, yeah, of yeah. somebody's yeah. whatever and my mom was convinced it was because like my dad was fucking the lady oh right like sure. she was like she's like it's just not like, because they were trying to separate two drug addicts yeah no it's just like yeah. it's well her thing was just like it's the kind of thing he would do and get away with like so he would be the kind of guy that would convince a, like a lady in that position to to get him out of the marriage <laughs> yeah in a like, way that would not or, or cop that, to him being fucking her or like or the that he could talk that lady into fucking him, yeah, you know, yeah. like that she would be like, I could lose my job and everything else, but why not? Yeah, sure. This guy's charming. And so, I mean, I kind of believe her to be honest. Yeah, that he, <laughs> he was that charming. Sure. I mean, like, it's possible. So this guy, and then after that, you, he kind of went his own way and your mom married somebody else. And that, my mom yeah. never remarried. Um, my dad ended up marrying the girl, the woman that he was cheating on my mom with when I was born. Wow, um, it's a complicated story. Yeah, my dad's been married five times, twice to the same woman, and all but two of his wives have passed away. Uh, so, <laughs> like you, one woman twice. But you don't, you didn't, you don't consider him an active part of your childhood, other than visits. Not, yeah, not really. So it was just you and your mom. Yeah, and then when I was, out. and then when I was three or four, uh, my adoptive father came in, and he was, he is, and has been consistently. With, but he's not like, married to your mom. No. They're just together. 
they were together for a long time. They broke up when I was 12, but have, and like, it's kind of cute. Decent guy. Amazing person. Oh, that's Amazing good. person. Um, to this day, she's still, uh, we're still up in Fresno. Um, and she still goes and stays with him periodically just to make sure he's healthy. He's in his, his early eighties now. Wow. So, yeah. um, like they're, haven't been together for a very very long time but they still yeah you know are there for each other and kind of and still what were you doing you know like in high school and stuff i mean because i know like i only know parts of of your story from you know talking to you and i know about you know the graduate program and and all this stuff but and i know about the drugs but i don't know how it all fits together so <laughs> your your adoptive stepfather leaves it at to you're 12 and it's you and your mom and your well, he mom doesn't leave my mom moved out and he still would pick me up every day and drive me to school and, and have your breakfast mom was with clean? me and oh yeah 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 like aa queen or na na oh yeah, yeah i've never seen my parents loaded really which is actually kind of worse in some ways because they're clean yeah but they're completely emotionally immature and unavailable so well, that's, yeah well oh, you know. huh. and, and so it's that thing where um they may be clean but you know, your recovery is not necessarily something that is commensurate with time sober. Right. You yeah. Know? You might never get better yeah. emotionally. You you could spend yeah. decades still being um, so, a fucking addict and sure. behaving in an addict way. And well, theoretically, you know, if you using... work these steps, it's supposed to uh, get, get, give you a handle on that. Well, I'd say that my mom and dad, I mean, my dad is a real dad re- or adopted. Dad. My, ado- yeah. uh, my biological father yeah. went into um, psychology and was a, a, in rehab stuff, like helping people oh, recover. So he, oh, he and it's a, a big time a, NA person. Drug counselor. And, yeah. Oh. Um, and then my mom's a neonatal intensive care unit nurse and has been since I can remember, um, mainly specifically because she wanted to help uh, drug addicted babies because my brother was born addicted to drugs. And uh, when I was born, or she told me the story that when my brother was born and she was holding him in the hospital, she had said, she had told herself that if she could ever manage to get clean, yeah. she wanted to be like these nurses that were helping her and showing her all of this compassion, God. even though she was a fucking addict. Yeah. So um, they both, I would say, are amazing human beings. I mean, the recovery service. rate. They, I mean, they, the recovery, they locked into service. The recovery rate from heroin addiction is like 2%. It's terrible. It's So they're superheroes already for just sure. getting and staying clean off of heroin. And they have been of incredible service to other people. And they, I know they sponsor lots of people and they speak around the world and they have a lot of fucking clean time. Yeah. All of this stuff. But it's that same thing of like, you know, the the hardest thing to do is like yourself and those inner family sure, dynamics. Yeah, because they, I think you're locked you know, into a pattern yeah. that becomes it's easier to deal with people. Yeah, that. yeah. You know. So when do you start using drugs? I was I started using drugs when I was fourteen. What were you, what what was your like when you were in high school? It, outside of doing comedy bits with your father and like, did you have things you wanted to do? Well, I had been a writer since I was about four, yeah. and it was just because I um, always had. I it's funny to me now that I did porn or that I do stand up or anything like that because I was painfully, painfully shy. For a very long time. I mean, like full blown panic attacks, like sweating, like I like just I my In what situations when you had to do any situation. Yeah. I just uh I my 
home life was really turbulent mm. and the way that I responded to the trauma was to become like a very avoidant fawn. How was it how was it turbulent? Um a lot of just emotional instability, you know, emotionally and like my my adoptive father was a very stabilizing influence. He's never done drugs in his life. Yeah. He's never been high. He's yeah. never smoked a cigarette. Right. He's you know, just like was a coach and a teacher and a Midwest guy, like taught me how to fix cars, taught me, how, you yeah. know, like just such a, an antidote to my mother. So where was the insanity? Your mother? But my mom was fucking nuts. Uh-huh. Um, Drama? Just like uh, vibrating with her own anxiety yeah, and yeah. distress and re- unresolved trauma. And then I think for her having because she had endured a lot of sexual abuse and things like that when she was young. And I think for her, like having a daughter, yeah, like really kind of triggered in her a lot of anxiety that made her, you know, one, it was, she was constantly, I think, being triggered. Yeah, right. By, by, about her own shit. Yeah. And then she because would- Because of your existence. Yeah. Just yeah. like all I had to do was be there. Mm-hmm. You know, and then I was a pretty little girl. Mm. And I like I remember one of the, like, my most vivid memories from childhood is is my physical appearance being treated like a crisis. Like oh, really? the number of talks that I would have, like the number of times about that, what you're pretty. You got to be careful. Yep. Yeah. Like which was really um, traumatizing. Yeah. Because uh, it made me feel like I was wrong no matter what. Right. It made me feel like my very existence was wrong. And I remember my mom's father, who was a Frenchman that would come visit like every couple of years. And, the Frenchman? Yeah. Like what? Because that was the thing. You felt like it was this foreign guy that she was really obsessed with. This that, is your that, grandfather. Yeah. That like didn't make sense to me. From France? Yeah. Or Canada? From France. France. Uh. And I remember him just sitting me down one day and saying, listen, you're a very beautiful girl, but uh, one day someone's going to want to talk to you and you better have something to say. And I remember that, like... <laughs> that was that's his advice? The first yeah. He, his whole thing was don't rely on it. Don't, you know, that it's the one thing that's going to go away. Everyone's going to love you for that. And yeah. then it's going to go away and no one will love you anymore. So, so that was an inspiration in a way. It was. But, like, it was the same thing. Where even my adoptive father, yeah. when he would be taking me around to hardware stores and shit like that when I was a little girl, and when guys would be like, oh, she's so pretty. Yeah. And he would say, don't say that. I don't want her to think it's important. Yeah, give her a wrench. Yeah, he was yeah. really like, he was like, a, it, but I remember the him overhearing him say that one day where he's like, I don't want her to think it's important. Like, don't say that to her. I well, don't so like it. It seems like these, these men were trying to... Uh, to help in their weird way. Yeah. But I mean, the overall thing was this yeah. ambient stressor of like, you're in danger and also you're not good enough. And also the only reason people like you is because of the way you look. Yeah. But that's bad. Right. And so it was just this weird kind of hornet's nest of shit. And you were writing. That triggered this just intense anxiety. I yeah. just didn't want to interact with people because it felt like every interaction was wrong. Yeah. And so unsafe. How long did that last? Or when did it, just... it went, it lasted a really long time. So I, I was always a writer and I, w- my form of escapism was I would write little stories and do little things where I would cons. And when my mom gave me a bunch, a box of all of the, she had saved all of it. Yeah. And so there's my first poem I wrote when I was four. Yeah. Yes. How was it? It's cute. Okay. But and when I read through the stuff, the yeah. theme that I see is just this one of escapism where I'm trying to imagine myself into places where it's always like going to some kingdom where there's like a benevolent queen and king yeah. that are reliable. Yeah. And that it's a place there there's not like this suffering and like they're not really these extravagant fantasies. Right. Like what I see is someone that's just longing for some kind of sense of stability and security. And also like maybe magic. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
Um, and so I was always writing and I would try and excel academically because also I really started to cling to teachers as the stabilizing influence sure. because everything at home just felt really chaotic. And as, as awesome as my adoptive dad was, he's also very taciturn. So he didn't, we never talked about feelings or emotions. Yeah. So he was always there. I always knew that financially and if I needed stuff that dad was there. Yeah. But he was not someone that I would ever talk to about feelings. And he never talked about feelings like ever. Well, it's interesting that search for like, you know, parents when your parents are whatever, however yeah. they're detached or emotionally negligent or abusive. The uh, yeah, the, the constant sort of gaping need thing that you walk around the world with is yeah. the worst. I mean, I did it too. It's always sort of like, well, will you be my dad? You know? Yeah. I mean, it was big time and it felt kind of weird because I did have present parents, Yeah, but I felt like I didn't. Well, the emotional support was they were too wrapped up in their own shit. Yeah. So yeah. then you just sort of get abandoned to kind of, you know, manufacture some inner parent that's never good and then like walk around looking at adults to do it. Yeah. And so I really, I really leaned into school. You know, and I, yeah. so I was always teacher's pet because yeah. like there was one thing I figured out really quickly, which is that I was really smart. Yeah. And um, I was really good at pleasing people. Uh -huh. um, I was really good at just tamping down whatever my emotional state was to well, you're, like, you know, over. how could you not with that mother? How could you not be just sort of a born codependent? Yeah. <laughs> so um, so that the real reason that I excelled academically wasn't even about like I'm a genius and I'm smarter than other people. It yeah. was just like. That was where I knew what I had to input to get the output. Yeah. I input the work. Yeah. The output is praise and acceptance. Yeah. Right? And yeah. it's like, that was very comforting to me because I didn't have to guess. Do the assignment, get an A, get love. Mm. Easy. Yeah. You know? And I think I walked through most of my life, even now as an adult, longing for that kind of clarity yeah. so, around how to do it and so, how to get it. Yeah. So... When you graduated high school, you were like a star student kind of deal? Well, I graduated early. Um, so I started doing drugs in high school. I was still performing academically really well. What drugs? Uh, I went straight from nothing to crank and methamphetamine. Crank. Um, and Old school. Yeah. Crank. Truck stop speed. Yeah. So I went. That was and, and, and the reason that that happened was because I could do it and allowed me to perform academically yeah. Like up here. Yeah. For me, drug use was always about being Wonder Woman. It was yeah. never about getting high. Yeah. It was always about being able to perform, like to outperform anybody else because yeah. I felt like that's all I had. That was so my only, that was my USP. Were was you snorting it, shooting it? Snorting it. Yeah. I wasn't, no, I was not shooting it at 15. I wasn't that cool. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't yeah. that awesome. Yeah. But um, so I ended up getting sent to rehab, two different rehabs. At 15? Yeah. And so that disrupted my schooling. And when I came back um, and while I was in rehab, I got outed as being queer, um, even though I went to a performing arts high school where like everyone was gay, but I was a girl and gay. So it was different. Yeah. It was like there was an acceptance that the males in the ballet department were queer and it was accepted that the guys in the art department might be queer and that some of the theater guys were queer. Yeah. But for like when I was outed as being queer, I had a girlfriend. Yeah. Um, it hit different. And so I was like, get me out of here. So I took what happened? I took summer school every but like, well, how did you get outed? What what was in what was the I don't the, know. And, I, but I, so I don't people know. started making fun of you or it just it just became a joke. Well, it became tense. 
Um, I so I went to performing arts high school, but it was attached to a traditional high school in a super like Mexican Catholic traditional air like the population of that high yeah. school was it was, had these very conservative values around shit like that. And that was scary to people like right. it was. And so it wasn't just people making fun of me. I mean, it was like a genuine hostility that was kind of. So what'd you fraught. do? It was. And so I just went in and was like, I want to get out early. So I took some AP courses, some honors courses. I went to summer school for two semesters and I graduated early. And so you were sober. Yeah. So after you graduate the high school and your mom, you know, encourages you to do the creative thing. Is that what drove you? I mean, did you move into that? Then? Yeah. Well, so then I, I got into the program and I'd been writing poems and stuff like that because I I in high school, I'd gotten enmeshed in these this really how I'd met the girlfriend was yeah. um, there was this kind of arts cafe district in town where all of these people of various ages that were playwrights and poets and independent musicians, and all these people. Yeah. Like would all congregate. Yeah. And I started congregating there hanging and out, hanging out and and getting kind of taken under wing by a lot of these yeah. people. So that's when I first got the idea that I wanted to be, like I always knew I wanted to be a performer. I I went to a performing arts high school. Yeah. Like obviously like I was in- You didn't in, know what kind of performance? Well, I was but... in theater and ballet and playwriting, but because I was so painfully shy, I yeah. couldn't perform. So right. I had picked, I had leaned on dance because it didn't require talking and then yeah. of course writing because it didn't require- being on stage right and puberty really kind of just doubled up like it was like it was like a shot in the arm to any kind of anxiety that was yeah. already there it right. just made it crippling um, which is really why I leaned into writing in in college but so I knew those people in that time in high school had been where I first got the idea that I knew I wanted to be involved in entertainment or the arts or it's that I was going to be like an artist it's good to me it's like you know it's good to uh, have those people like I used to hang around the university when I was in high school and it was just like just to be around it and to know that like you know people do this yeah it's you good know. yeah yeah so I, I still didn't it was still a small town and I didn't see a direct path to say what I'm doing now which is probably why we didn't have like a stand up comedy scene there yeah so well, no one knows how to do that well, I mean, yeah, pretty much. I mean, when I started, yeah, there was like, you, you know, you just got to figure out where and how to do it. I mean, like when you started, at least it was, uh, there was a lot of places. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, but, and also the same with like what you're doing now, which is, you know, trying to sell a TV show, you know, that that's something you just have to learn on the fucking job, you know? Yeah. But so when did you go, where did you go after high school? Did you, when did you start college? When was so that? So I was 16 when I started college. Really? Yeah. Where was that? At Davis? No, oh, no. That was, was the graduate thing? No, no. Uh, I was always at, I don't want to say, I was at Fresno State. Um, it's just like, there's so many things that, have, I was thinking about this a lot before I came here, because there's so many things and there's so many stories around what got me here that involve people that have moved on with their lives. And like, just the thing I've become really aware of in the last year or two, especially, is like that, like wanting people shouldn't have to necessarily suffer consequences later on down the line for shit they did when they were kids. And so I kept going like, what am I going to be able to talk about? Cause there are so many, there are so many kind of defining moments that like, that involves sort of like, they kind of open up a, a, a hell mouth into what? 
I mean, without, I mean, like, what are the, like, without, you know, naming names, what are you considering a defining moment? And what, uh, being sexually assaulted by my mentor professor in graduate school, which completely destroyed my life. But that is like, I don't want to be defined by that, but like that defined like everything that came after it. Yeah. And so that, that, that is always my hesitation with doing this stuff because yeah. it's like, I don't want that person to have air. Yeah. And I also don't want anyone to question me. Right. And that's inevitably what happens. Yeah. And it becomes so easy to take these moments and go like, well, because that happened, then that's why she made this choice over sure. here. And I feel like that experience is like incredibly common and those people don't end up doing porn but they do end up being as broken as I was for many, many years, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, I don't think, and that's always my fear with everything or with having these conversations is there's an internal pressure around like not wanting to disappoint the people that are still there. Yeah. That like my experience is not everyone's experience. And there are a lot of broken people that don't do this job and there are, a lot of really healthy people that do this job and for the them it's, job. yeah and for them it's and for them it's okay for them it's really liberating like when you say healthy people doing it as a job or as yeah, like, like, now that they have the ability to do only fans or whatever because there's like i've seen some of that stuff i don't know about that whole world but it seems like people who just have a uh, uh an idea to do it they could be, you know, housewives yeah. or whatever. They can do it now. Yeah. And it's it, and it can be empowering and it can be exciting. It can be extra income. I mean, it doesn't it, have yeah. to be some indicator that yeah. this is a, 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 a fucked up person. I just I just feel like there's a, there's a desire to um, reinforce this sort of misogyny and patriarchal kind of structure of sure. society by having these narratives around anything that economically empowers women or that acknowledges that women's sexual labor is valuable. <laughs> yeah. Like all of patriarchy is kind of predicated on the idea that women are worthless. So yeah. like right. Like anytime we do anything that reinforces the idea that what women do with sex is labor. <laughs> yeah. It is it's a treat for you. Right. But it's, it's usually but labor it's on labeled, her end, and right? It's labeled yeah. as immoral or, Yeah. Or, it's or, like so there's this there's a really quick desire, this knee jerk desire to kind of reinforce any kind of narrative that's like sweat, Yeah, this is whores. horrible. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. she may be economically empowered, but she's miserable. Right. You know, or like, she's broken and she's yeah. you know, garbage. Yeah. But all right, so but leading up to that, so you did your undergraduate So I did stuff. my undergrad and I at that time. Was, it was for writing. You got into the writing. Yeah, I was I was doing English lit, and yeah. I had been a poet and all this stuff. But you know, I suffered from anxiety right. and all of that. And I actually was double majoring in sociology because I still was like, eh, but I'm gonna like do the other thing, yeah, yeah. right? So right, it's like, sure. I so, that was the backup plan. Yeah, I was like, I was like, this is cute, but like, all You're like, let be me at a, least a therapist or something. Yeah, I was like, well, at least let me get like a sociology degree as well, yeah, and then yeah. that way, you know, I'll. Like the English lit, that'll make yeah. me really good at writing grants. Right, and yeah. then I'll the, have an ology. Yeah, and then yeah. the sociology part, like I knew that that as, as a degree was kind of one of the most flexible in terms of going into, say, social work or doing uh, yeah. and any kind of like public sector stuff. Yeah. And so I just felt like it was still kind of like it would give me that flexibility. Yeah. 
And then because when I got assaulted by the professor, I mean, that just kind of. And how many years? So you went to graduate school to write? Yeah. So basically, basically the same, same institution. So, um, I was doing English lit and sociology and I was actually way way more excited about doing the sociology stuff because I still didn't see a practical way to be a writer. Right. I just, it just didn't seem practical to me. I had done some workshops and a professor, um, pulled me aside and was like, you're a really talented poet. Like you're really good at this. Yeah. And I think you should do the graduate program here and we can get you grants and scholarships. We can pay for it. Mm. Um, and that poetry program, the last two poet laureates of the United States came out of that program. Wow. Um, yeah. Phil Levine and Juan Felipe Pereira. So, no kidding. Um, I mean, it was like a, <laughs> there was some bona fides yeah, to that sure, program. Sure. And I had never, up until that point, like I had, I mean, I'd always performed well academically and all of that stuff, but I, I just had never had someone the confidence in the creativity. Say, like, yeah. someone say, like, like you're so good at this, we want to give it money. Right. Right? Yeah. Like, I had not had that. Right. And and I was writing about a lot of the stuff I was going through emotionally. Um, I moved out of my mom's house the day I turned 18. But I was still feeling a lot of turmoil. And, I, like, when I look back on it now, a lot of the turmoil was around how to disconnect from that relationship with my mom. Yeah. And um, I was also, you know kind of wrestling with men paying attention to me. I, you know, I was still a virgin at that point and like was trying to navigate being a grown up in terms of academically and intellectually, but being completely socially immature. Yeah. Um, because I had, I had never tried to have social skills and I had this crippling anxiety and it made me very vulnerable. And, and so I just didn't, because of all that upbringing I had that was like, you're always in danger in the presence of a man. You cannot trust men and all that kind of stuff, which kind of made what happened when I was assaulted by the professor at my senior year in college was what made it so devastating. Like you, was, you knew it was the heard one. It was it. the first person that I had ever trusted. Yeah. Outside of my family. Yeah. And it was heartbreaking. And then that person like basically stalked me for like a year afterwards. Like while this was going through. Like while the police reports were being filed and because like, I I I felt I. I called the cops <laughs> like I didn't like I and the thing is like it's very different today than it was then when I called the police the first question I was asked if I is if I was dating him yeah um and then as it it got referred to the DA's like sexual assault team and uh they called me and said that they thought that they shouldn't press charges because I was going to have to testify against them and that was going to be really hard for me and um, they just didn't think that there was going to be enough evidence, even though there was, I mean, like l- by today's standards, what they were saying was like fucking ridiculous. Mm. Um, but then I got off the phone with them and someone else called from their office confidentially and said, um, I looked into it for you. And if you go through the school's like sexual harassment policy through civil court, you actually have X, Y, Z. And I've looked up all the things and all of the title violations that have gone on here. Mm-hmm. And like, this is something that you could do. And that would probably get this person removed from their tenure and everything mm-hmm. else. And so I went through that route, which sucked because it never feels good to not go through the criminal justice route. Right. Because as soon as you do that, it immediately makes it like, oh, harassment, which I felt what happened was not harassment. It was assault. 
and it was horrible and like it devastated me and it set me on a path for years afterwards and what was, happened ultimately did you get it did you resolve did he get did you get he resolution? ended up he ended up you know stalking people and there was an investigation and it went through this and that still I, teaching though yep and then all these he eventually was when it came down to the fact that he was going to have to go to court he resigned mm. and i was told to be happy with that result and then found out that a semester later he was hired at another university in the system wow. as if nothing had happened so like the priest yeah that, i mean essentially that's what happened mm. and like but that the whole pro- i mean i'm i'll never regret that i i'll never regret that i stood up for myself and that I went through with it and that I testified and that I put myself through one of the most humiliating processes you can go through, which is being questioned and and being opened up, being interrogated yeah. around like everything about your life. Um, and I mean, one of the ironies was that the thing that in the end they were sold on, they were like, well... Normally when people are making this up, they're doing it for attention, but she's a straight A student and she's considered kind of like a star academic and she's really well liked by all of her peers. So that doesn't make sense. And uh, she's queer. So that also doesn't make sense. She's a lesbian. Because yeah. at that point, like I'd never, you know what I mean? I'd never even like ha- like had a boyfriend. I'd never, hmm. I'd never done it. You know what I mean? Like I had, and so, which was like this weird irony because I was like, that shouldn't be the reason that he's guilty like yeah. it's sh- that those things should both be irrelevant what should be relevant is that there were like witnesses to just before and immediately after that were convinced that something really horrible had happened on the in-between and they all came forward and they all testified on my behalf and they all said they believed me and they all said he had even partially confessed to someone else that he thought was going to be sympathetic to him mm. and that person came forward and they were very disturbed by what he had told them so it's like it, I'll never regret having done it. Yeah, it felt really empowering to do that. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, it was just devastating to it. Just stripped mine to my self esteem. Yeah, and so what were the immediate repercussions of that? Did you leave the school? Did well, you- I I had just gotten accepted to the graduate school at the same place, yeah. and so um, I was constantly afraid and worried that people thought that I got into the program as like a peace offering, even though I'd already been admitted and accepted and all yes. of that stuff way before any of this had right. happened. Um, but also like I was in distress, you know, while I was um, preparing testimony and being stalked, <laughs> like with no help, no, like I would complain endlessly, no help. Mm. You know, this guy would show up at my door, like banging on my apartment, stuff like to that. To try to get he, you to shut up. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, it was like I had no help, no recourse. So I'm doing all of that while trying to go to school, which was horrible. And like trying to focus on grad school, like while that's happening. Yeah. I mean, it was Impossible, just like, yeah. it was just, and not feel like I could talk to anybody about yeah. it because I felt like I had to be tough. Mm. And there was no counseling available or you couldn't trust anybody. I mean, it's like, it. I felt so, I like, I was already so anxious and suspicious of people and the first time I'd been like looked at someone as a mentor that is how I was repaid and like one of the other things is it launched me into my first relationship with a man that ended up being an incredibly abusive situation and it was because I felt so unsafe how'd you meet that guy 
I was working at a pool hall. Wait, um, so you leave school? You, no, I'm going to school and I'm working. Yeah. I'm like going to school. I'm working as an ESL tutor. Yeah. I'm, uh, I wasn't What's accepted. What's ESL? English as a second language. Okay, okay. At the college and then taking a full load as in a graduate student yes. and working a, a job. Yeah. So I'm doing all of that while also going through like the this harrowing fucking process yeah. of whatever. Yeah. And, um, so I met this guy and it was like, he was really into me. He kind of, he kind of took control. Where'd you meet him? At the pool hall. And I got invited to this party at his house after, after hours. And he's, he was like all the other waitresses there thought this guy was really cool. He was very attractive, very charismatic, mm. very, what and he just liked me right away. What he was he, he, I mean, we were in our 20, like right, I was barely sure. 21. He yeah. was a little older, yeah. but like, he was like already a manager at a, at like a, at like a retail store and all like, he was already like a boss, right? Yeah, like yeah, sure. in the time, in this way that seemed very impressive. Yeah. Um, and he just knew what he wanted and was really into me. And, um, like when we met it's like there was this couple fighting in the parking lot and i was in his car to go to this house and he started following the couple and he's like i'm worried about that girl and then he like stopped his car and like got out and walked over to the couple and was like is everything okay here and i remember feeling like really like impressed by that safe safe and that was going to be me in another year. Sure. I was going to be the girl in the parking lot with the him being the fucking horrible guy. Oh, really? Yeah. Like a, like physically? It was bad. Too? Emotional, I don't want to get physical? into all of it, but right. it was it was bad. It was toxic. It was like me leaving in the middle of the night, not telling anyone where I was going and feeling like go? I couldn't. I, I went and found another apartment. And I found a, a landlord that would Oh, take, you had moved in with him? Oh, yeah. Like we were in it. We were going to get married. How long was that? For? That was a two-year relationship, and it just it ended in horror, yeah. chaos. It was it was bad. It was really bad. Um, but like, Abuse. what got me into that relationship yeah. was feeling like when I had made my own decisions because I had just gotten free from my mom and gotten into my own place, and then immediately this fucking guy, this professor, yeah. had done what he had done, and I felt scared and really vulnerable. And this guy came in, and it just seemed like. He was really controlling and all that stuff, but just some part of me felt like he knows what he wants. He knows the answers. He always has the answers, and all I want is the answers. Stability. You want that stability. And so I just right? leaned into. Yeah, yeah, I just leaned into it because I was like, I don't feel safe on my own. Would you? Does your mom know about all this stuff that's going on? She didn't know. I like I didn't tell anybody, and that's not uncommon, I guess. Like about, I found out later that but like, she knew about the professor. Yeah. Yeah. Right, but yeah. you, but not the new guy. Yeah. So you leave in the middle of the night, you find another apartment, then what happens? Um, so that was when I started doing drugs again. That was like, because I was just kind of, I couldn't, I was like, I couldn't hold it together anymore. The crank? More crank? It was meth at that point. Meth. Yeah. It was the like, next, it the was. Next, the evolution I mean, crank. I was, I was, yeah. I had just left an incredibly abusive. Were you smoking it? Yep. Mm. I was freebasing it. There I had left an incredibly abusive Whoa. relationship for I'd been with this person for two years that yeah. had really ground me down to nothing after having bo- been through the whole sexual assault thing. Oh, so then you're gonna do meth to finish the job? Well and I'm still going to graduate school. 
I'm still I'm still doing maximum the maximum amount of units allowed. I'm still at this point. I'm now working as a as a TA, so I'm teaching English one, working as an English as a second language tutor, and working a full time job as a waitress and bartender so that I can survive. I'm doing all of that on top of being just emotionally devastated. Like and on I meth? I didn't the meth was like it literally allowed me to not die from exhaustion. Yeah yeah yeah. Oh right. Mm. It was just like it was just keeping me alive. It was it was just like animating. It was sure. like where did so where did that end go? Where did like how long does that go on for? Uh, Meth is pretty devastating pretty quickly. You know, I still have all my teeth and I'm still cute. No, so I get I it, know. but still, but mentally, <laughs> you know. Um, I ended up moving back into my adoptive father's house. Yeah, and kind of just kind of fell apart. And I think it was probably the first time in my life that I'd ever let everything just like fall apart. Yeah. Because I'd always been like a mascot. Right. 4.0 grade point average, always on top of everything. And it was like the first time that I allowed myself to just fail. That it couldn't hold anymore. And I wanted to fail. I think I just was like, you know what? I'm tired. I'm yeah, fucking yeah. tired. Yeah. Um, and I did. And I, I was like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to ride this and see what happens. Um, and that's. I kind of I think the other thing about being a writer or a creative person is it's like you can kind of tell what you're about because there's certain stuff that you'll never stop doing. Like if in the like in the depths of addiction you're still doing stand up, it's like somehow you find a way. Sure. It's like And you even- also you kind of uh well, right, you 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 know what's you know what you deeply want to continue doing cuz you can't stop it other than the drugs. Yeah. Yeah, right? I mean, well, it's definitely one thing, which it refined all of my problems down to one. Where do I cop shit? Every yeah. day, one, no, one, yeah. like all of life's, all of the stuff around, like, what is the meaning of life? What is my purpose? What am I going to do when I grow up? All of that's gone. And all, all that's, all well, that's how, there. Well, how long did that last? A long time. A long time. Probably. Actually, I feel like it lasted. I did that for about two years. It just, it felt like, I don't know, like in tarot, there's like the tower card. Yeah. It just felt like this period in my life that was like a tower moment. It was just like literally anything that could fuck up or any way that I could be disillusioned or disappointed yeah. or defeated. Well, where where do happening. you get saved by whatever? Where's the knight? Um, or the, there's no the, knight. Woman, or the princess or whoever. <laughs> how do you, where do you get, how do you get the fuck out of Fresno? Um, so it kind of culminated in this trip I took to Hawaii with my brother and my mom because I had had this moment where I was like, if I keep doing this, I'm a lifer. I'd had one of those moments where I was like, if I stop right now, yeah, no, this yeah. is a story. I know that one. If yeah. I keep going right now, you won't know the difference. Like, I, yeah, I'm a lifer and I don't want to be a lifer. Yeah. So some part of me in the middle of all of that despair, like had some will to, to sure. live or transcend all of it. And I ended up taking this trip with my mom and my older brother to Hawaii. Yeah. And it's like every four or five years, my mom would find money to take like a family trip in this attempt to kind of pull us all together. And so yeah. we ended up in Kauai. I love on this, Kauai. Yeah. On this island at this resort. Yeah. And I didn't, it's like looking back now, I, sh- I should have been able to just be like, mom, like I'm a drug addict and yeah. I'm scared. But like I couldn't. Um. But my older brother, yeah. like we were out, um, we'd gone out early one morning and we were in the ocean together, just me and him. Yeah. And uh, 
And I, I remember just turning to him in the water and crying and saying, like, I'm stuck. Like, something really bad is happening. And he was like, what's going on? And I was like, like, I, like I'm a drug addict. Like, I'm in trouble. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he was like, okay, like, here's what we're going to do. You know, and he's like, you're going to I'm you're going to move in with me in Seattle and like we're going to take care of it. And it was kind of like this weird like it's like we had this secret. Right. And it's like I think it's like that weird kind of bond that you get with a sibling sometimes where it's like I think he just knew I was in real trouble, like because I was always the person in the family that's like like you know, like Jasmine's okay. Yeah. Jasmine's fine. Yeah. Like I was, that was my job in the family unit was to like bring up the rear and make everybody look good, you know? So I was always a straight A student. I was really beautiful. Mom and different people had eating disorders. I was like, had a, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. no matter what it was, it's like, I was athletic. Some, yeah. I was you were beautiful. the one who was, was the, yeah. the, um, what, like everyone thought you had your shit together. Yes. Right. I get and, um, and I've been that guy. Yeah. And so I had that. And so I moved to Seattle with my brother mm, thank um, God. and was there for six months and it was long enough to get clean. Yeah. Um, and it was like the secret, you know, it was like, no one's going to know, you right. know, like yeah. it's our little secret. Yeah. Um, and he supported me and you know what I mean? Like I didn't pay runner. It's like, he was just like, he's got to come up and like, we'll just handle it. Like, we'll just, we'll just handle it. Yeah. Um, and so then I went back to Fresno um, because I missed my friends and I kind of like, I was like, okay, I'm going to have to go back and kind of right. see what I can reconstruct of what I kind of let burn to the ground. Um, and I immediately relapsed. Oh. Man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is what it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I immediately, sure. well, I mean, immediately you, relapsed. How are you going to stay sober if you can, you don't have any sort of support system or yeah but somewhere in that i relapsed but not for as long it's like i relapsed yeah and i had a friend that i would use with this girl really beautiful yeah and i remember one day we were just high as fuck and i looked over and she was like playing with her nails and i realized that she had taken a paper clip and pulled off her thumbnail Mm, yeah and it was like this moment where i was like and i was like I don't want to say her name, but I was like, I was like Darby. Yeah. And she was like, huh? Yeah. <laughs> like, and I was like, baby, like, what are you? That's You're a, bleeding. A, and she's like looking. And I, it was this moment where I was like, I, that like, as weird as it is, that was like my weird rock bottom sure. where I was like, yep. I, I was like, oh man, like That's the bad part of this mess. is fucking yeah. can't do this. And so I kind of sat in my shit for a while and I got clean on, I, I, uh, cold Turkey just like stopped everything. Yeah. And I'd been working off and on on this novel because yeah. when I'd gotten really high and was like being methed out, I started reading Michel Foucault. Yeah. And um, he had this book, Discipline and Punish. And yeah. I found it very soothing. Yeah. Um, I'd never read philosophy before. Like I'd never. Um, yeah, I have a hard time with it. I used to too. Yeah. But for some reason, when I was in the depths of addiction, that book really changed my life. Oh, that's it, good. Like, be, there was something about the way he was looking at the world in this like structured and ordered way that that calmed me the fuck down. Yeah. And it helped me to see that there was, was a it way. It was rational. Yeah. Right. And like I had just grown up in fucking chaos. Yeah. 
you know, where yeah. every action was a reaction to fear or trauma or distress Cosmo or chaos. anger or yeah. despair. Yeah. So uh, that's like a billiard ball world where you just. Yeah. It, it, but like it's it just like I'd never seen someone kind of map it out like they're that. Yeah. That like it's not just you. Mm. That you're part of a structure that has contributed. And like, so it wasn't that it was helping me with addiction, but I was having a quarter life crisis is what I was having. Yeah. How old were you? At this time, I was like 25, 26. Yeah. So I was having a quarter life crisis, but I didn't have a word for it. You know what I mean? Like that's, but that's what was happening is I was doing drugs and all of this shit because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Or the thing is, I knew what I wanted to do, yeah. but I could not overcome my fear of doing it. Okay. So I knew sure. I wanted to leave home. I knew I wanted to be an artist. I yeah. knew I wanted to be a performer. I yeah. knew I wanted to do all that, but that meant moving away from home. Yeah. It meant going into like all kinds of uncertainty. And as someone that had been raised to be predictable, stable, always right, never fuck up, perfect and correct at all times, that was like an existential crisis. Right. But you were all you were pushing your mental limits on speed. Yeah. But I didn't know it. I didn't right, know that. Sure. You know, I didn't realize that. And so. So what did you end up? What? So I, um, I, there was, we were, I was on MySpace and Tumblr and there was this site, God's Girls, that was sort of a competitor to Suicide Girls. And it was like $200 per photo shoot and we'll fly you out for $2,000. Like send in your photos. Yeah. And I, it was this thing where it was like, I, I just, it wasn't like I needed the money per se. It was like because of everything I talked about in the way I was raised around appearance and like, don't be pretty and don't do this and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. It was like, I just, it just seemed like a risk I wanted to take. Right. And I was like, let me do this. And if they accept me, I'll take that as like a sign. And then I can take that money and maybe I can backpack around Europe because I'd been writing this novel about the the Catholic genocide in the Von D, which is like a footnote of a footnote in Discipline and Punish. That's where the Michel Foucault connection comes in. Uh-huh. Um, and so I and sub- you finished that book. You finished writing it. I mean, the novel. there's so many drafts of it. Okay. <laughs> I, it's my leaves of grass. Okay. I'm still working on it. Okay. But there is, there is, a, there is, there are many drafts of it. Okay, good. And there's none I would show anybody. Okay. Um, but so I, I submitted and uh, got accepted and there was a photographer that, um, for the, for that site yeah. that saw my pictures and fell in love with me and started a correspondence with me. Uh-huh. Um, and it felt like it took a really long time. But when I look back at the emails, we were emailing for maybe a month or two. Yeah. And then he, he said he wanted to fly me out to New York city where he lived. Right. And like, we would do all these photographs together. Like he would photograph me for the site. Like, yeah. He's like, because typically the site, you would be sent to a photographer that was in like the nearest city and they had people in LA and New York. And what and were the pictures? Like it was, it was like, it was, a, it was an alt porn site. It was like soft core, like nudes. It wasn't. Just you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so he paid for my plane ticket out there. My dad gave me $200 and I went to New York with like a suitcase and $200 yeah. and I stayed for three years. I never went home. And you stayed with that guy. Yep. And like you it, did photographs. We did photographs and then like fell in love and right. kind of became really enmeshed with each other and got kind of swept up in this moment in this sort of like uh, kind of renaissance of porn movement that happened. It kind of coincided with the Sasha Gray Tumblr. So yeah. it kind of brings us back into like that yeah. 
put us up to like 2012. Yeah, you're making the- We're doing all this art stuff and there's this vision that we're going to be part of this sort of bohemian artistic porn slash whatever. Like, it's hard to explain to people what it felt like in 2010, 2009 to 2012, what it felt like to be in porn where- the means of production had been made accessible to everyone. There were these streaming but, platforms where you could go everyone, and it felt like, like it kind of, we felt like we were doing radical activism just by living our lives. And it's also like, self ownership. Yeah. And just, was was he the guy that you sort of credit for getting you over the anxiety hump, or was, I mean, you know, how did you? Was this just I'm going to throw myself into this? I still did was. The fear I, went away. Or no? I still was okay with everything because it was photos. But like you, you, you know. lost your inhibitions. You weren't. You didn't have the anxiety. I mean, I just I never had anxiety around my naked body because right. I never felt like my body was mine in the first place. Mm. So like I was always a workhorse for my family and for everything. I've had a job since I was twelve years old. Um, I never felt like my I owned my body or had a right to it, or I just never had an opinion about it. It was like having an opinion about the engine in your car. Like, who cares how it looks? It doesn't huh. matter. You know, it's like, I just didn't feel, so I never felt feelings like shame or this or that. Cause it was just kind of like, I understand when people look at my tits, they feel something. I don't know what that is and I don't really care. And it kind of doesn't really matter. Just give me money. You know, it was like, I just didn't have that kind of relationship to my body. I just yeah. did. I never felt, I never felt anxious about whether or not people thought I was hot or cute or, oh, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, I just... Okay. You know, it so, just it felt like something that didn't belong to me, if that makes sense. It's yeah, just kind it's of, like disassociative almost. Yeah, pretty much. That's not great. <laughs> Is it not? <laughs> I feel like most women spend most of their lives being disassociative, like being yeah. dissociative because yeah. of the because the of attention? because of the way that that we're groomed to exist. Right. So you're projected upon mm -hmm. and objectified. So and that's kind of why not yeah. be disassociated. Yeah. I mean, that's how most women are coping. I think most mm. women are walking around dissociative states. So you do the bohemian art thing and that turns and it felt like you're part of a movement. And then what? So um, around 2011, I got scouted by a feminist porn filmmaker in L.A. And that was that was a big decision. A woman. Yeah. A woman. I don't want to. I don't want to give her air either because she turned out to be interesting. Um, it's a diplomatic word. But okay. <laughs> I mean, interesting. Yeah. It's neutral. Neutral. Um, and my feelings about her are neutral. Okay. So you get she scouts you. She out. scouts me, and it, like that is a big decisive moment. Um, uh, I my dad had my adoptive father had cancer at the time. And I was flying to Fresno a lot to take care of him. And we didn't know how we were going to deal with bills. She made the offer and yeah. it was just like, uh, come do this and I'll try to make you a contract girl and I'll pay you $1,000 per scene. And at the time I'd been living off of my modeling work in New York and I was like $1,000 per scene to me was like a lot of fucking money. Now, what makes a feminist? Was it all girl? That's up for debate in our industry. Uh, I think it just means that the woman's holding the camera. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. But uh, so I 
started doing Girl Girl. And my thought at the time was like, I'll do a few movies and I'll take the money and mm. I'll go to bum around Europe and do that. Like this, you my see, whole life has you, been like trying to get to the same weird place. Yeah, where you can just, <laughs> like, walk, just around walk around Europe. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I signed on to do it and like, I just kind of became popular. You know, I was a really popular girl, girl performer. I only worked with women and it was this time when we were making really artsy stuff and we were making a lot of features and I was, and it turned out I was a good actress. Yeah. And a lot of the movies at the time were features. They had scripts and yeah. stories and, yeah. and there was this feeling that we were making art. It was just kind of radical and that this is about to be this new kind of era of cinema where there was going to be this sort of synergy. Because you have to think this at the same time that Gaspar Noé was coming out with stuff, Sasha Gray was doing mainstream movies. There was a feeling that there was this moment where maybe like these Porn two worlds... Porn was going to break legit. Well, yeah. Or these worlds might collide and yeah. live harmoniously together. Yeah. And in some ways that's come true. I mean... Being a porn star star has now become its own unique kind of celebrity mm -hmm. in a way that it wasn't before. Mm -hmm. You know, it used to be like, well, she used to do porn and now she's this. Now porn stars in and of themselves are legitimate celebrities. I mean, they're now like rappers and musicians where for them it's a brag to say that their girlfriend is a porn star. It's I get that. Wild. But like, you know, you're still up against, you know, like how, like we don't have to go through the whole porn experience. But I mean, now that you you want to get out of it. Because what was this point where you thought it was going to break legit? Then, like by the time I met you, you were like, "I'm just doing girl and girl. I want out." Yeah, know, I, want to I mean, get like, let me let me clarify. I never gave a fuck. I was trying to survive, but the photographer had a vision. I never cared about any of that stuff. Okay, but, you know what I mean. But like, what I'm I saying is care. that it became your job. It became right? a job. Yeah. And there, that once you were able to, you know, at post pandemic and sort of before the pandemic, when you were kind of doing, started doing the stand up, that, you know, you still were up against the fact that celebrity or not, being a porn person was sort of a liability in the legit world. To a degree, I've, the honestly, people have always asked, uh, like, oh, do your parents know what you do, or what did your parents think? And that one, that question's always funny to me because like I never even think of my parents as like thinking of me, like at all. You know what I mean? Yeah, so it's yeah. like it's like I was like, why would I tell them? They wouldn't care. Like why would they care what I was doing? Like I, I don't like it. Like it doesn't even enter my headspace yeah. that like they think of me. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. The only people I asked was I I asked all my friends that were writers that were working in publishing. I was like, if I do this, is it going to impact my career? And and they said, oh no, it's going to help it. They were like, it's, it's like that, it's like that Anton Robert Anton Wilson thing, which is like my advice to a young writer is involve yourself in some scandal. Yeah, like if you want to get published. Well, is that you does know. that turn out to be true though? Ultimately, it. I mean, it has because when I look back at everything that I have, if I hadn't been in porn, I wouldn't have gotten anyone's attention. Because you were do like you're writing for that magazine. What is it? I write for Mel Magazine, but I mean, even before that, when I was doing stand up or when I like when I had the podcast, my the podcast I had, yeah. Um, I knew that the reason I was able to get guests was because they wanted to come hang out with a porn star for an hour. And then right. they got in the door and they were like, oh, it's actually just a podcast. But well, that's how you... I kind of got into stand-up, though, was because those people, a lot of the, because then some of them were like that and then a lot of those people became friends and yeah. were like, oh, like. Oh, the comics? Yeah. yeah. And they were like. Give it know. a whirl. Yeah. A lot, like, I kind of was what made it awesome because by the time I started doing stand-up, 
no one gave me a hard time because everyone thought it was their idea. <laughs> yeah. Like everyone thought they were the one that had told me I should do it. So I was able to kind of circumvent a lot of the like, oh, a porn star that thinks she can do stand up. I was able to circumvent a lot of that because all of the comics that I was around were like, yeah, I told her she should do it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they all thought they were the one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, it's just like, you know, you wrote a script yeah. that's getting some attention um, and you're you're actively engaged in in the process of of maybe bringing it to life in you know in mainstream show business yeah in a big way. So where were you when you wrote that script? Because like like I said, like since I've known you, you've been sort of like one foot in the business. But like, and I also knew that it was a means of survival, and that after a certain point, the reality is it becomes difficult for you to like get any sort of like y- you know non celebrity job without being investigated yeah. somehow and judged, yeah. right? So, and that that's an obstacle, whether you think it's a, a moral issue or whether it bothers you or not, right? You've had to deal with that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's everything. It's it's I can get kicked out of my apartment. I've had bank accounts closed. I've I like I mean it I cannot date. I can't I mean it makes literally everything a challenge. And there's how, no but, aspect of life that is not profoundly impacted by doing this job. And that's the thing that I as much as we're talking about Here's my, I'll do this one rant for 30 seconds. My gripe about this normalization of sex workers' rights is like, the thing about sex workers' rights was about drawing attention to the fact that our job is a site of labor. Mm. It has never meant to glamorize what it is. And that has become conflated. Like, when we're talking about having rights, it's like we want people to recognize that what we do is labor and we deserve rights and protections just like everybody else. Mm. Um, We deserve to not be discriminated against. We deserve to be protected from public health diseases and things like that. We deserve to be safe from police harassment and job discrimination, right? Like these are just basic protections that should be in place because we are a legitimate site of labor. That's different from like whether or not this is a fun or good job or that something that's good for everybody or... Or even uh, your personal feelings about you in relation to it. Exactly. This has nothing to do with whether or not porn addiction is real, sex addiction is real, whether or not human trafficking exists. Like all of that is separate. It's a job. It's like at the end of the day, the majority of women engaged and men engaged in sex work are there willingly and have a clientele that has sought them out. We do not create the demand. We fulfill it. Yeah. Right. So even though I'd been through graduate school and life and I thought I comprehended how the stigma would impact the rest of my life, I had no fucking idea. I couldn't have comprehended how how profoundly like it impacts everything. And I think it's been devastating in my personal life, um, especially because of the kind of the uh, attitudes that people come into it with. You know, it's like having dating or really everything is impossible. Mm. So um, I so I started an adult in July of 2011. Uh, and the first year was really fun because it was just so different. Mm. So I was meeting all these crazy people. I went to my first AVN show. Yeah. I was sort of like a contract. I wasn't an official contract girl, but I was sort of you know, sort of the brand ambassador, if you will, of a, of, of a, a company. Um, I was getting scripts writ- wrote around me. It was all very thoughtful. I was acting. I was, you know, like all of the things. It was very exciting um, and fun. And then by 2012, 2013, I, it was like just starting to, that relationship had finally dissipated. And I finally found myself for the first time as a grown up 
like kind of just a free agent um, without respons- emotional responsibility to anybody. And um, I was already starting to see the limitations of the job. It's like it's not the most intellectually stimulating work you can do. Yeah. So the novelty of it had compensated for that at first. And then right. once the novelty of the job wore off, I was like, okay, but like, what am I really going to do, right? right like, like right. this is fun, but what am I really going to do? And this is around the time you started stand-up? I, I, almost. So that was like 2013, 2014. I, uh, I had met this photographer, Richard Avery, that was like, well, you're really, you're, you're blisteringly smart. For branding, you should have a podcast because you being on Twitter, these different places, because he had seen my Twitter and my pictures and he's like, you're really funny and all that stuff. He's like, you need a podcast like that's going to be the best branding for you. You need a format where you can sit and talk and people can hear how intelligent you are because that's your brand. And that was like kind of the first time I'd been around someone that was like, I'm going to tell you what you are. Right. 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 He was like, here's what you are. You're a really fucking smart bohemian girl that does sexy times sometimes. But like, that's just because she's a bohemian. That's your brand. That's who you are. Right. And, uh, and I took it and ran with it. I was like, okay. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, and so with the podcast, I was like, I'd always loved comedy, had been fascinated by stand-up, but didn't know how to do it. And so with the podcast, I was like, why don't I just interview comedians? Right. Like, that'll make it, yeah. uh, it'll two birds with one stone. Like, I'll kind of figure out how they got to sure. do it. That's why I interview actors. <laughs> you can but figure also, it out. Get also, free like, lessons. Also, I just was like, I didn't want the podcast to be like boring, right? Yeah, yeah, I was, sure. I was like, oh, I was like, I'll just have the comedians on, and then, yeah, and com- and so I went and like looked up a list of like, like <laughs> top up and coming comedians, and I messaged them all on Twitter, and they all agreed to come on the fucking show. Sure. So it's like, I it was, it's funny. I had like Willie Hunter and Drew Michael, and like there's been like Kyle, a relationship. Kyle Kinane yeah. and Bar- like I had like all of these people like came on. There's been a relationship between comedy and porn for a long time. Well, because you like we invented you guys. That's why. Okay. Well, no, because of vaudeville. In, vaudeville, in the vaudeville days, the, in yeah. the vaudeville days, the the host would bring on the burlesque girls, right? And then eventually that became stand up comedy. Yeah. So it's it's been a lifelong. Sure. Like we both exist kind of together. Yeah. Um, but so so I was doing that, and that's and then some like comic friends were like, you know, you should try it. Mm. I started doing stand up around 2015, and you and I had just become friends. And I also met a girl that became my girlfriend. Yeah. And she was a fan. She had started as a fan. I'd never done that before. But she had been buying Skype shows for me, and she was so stunningly fucking beautiful. I couldn't believe it. And um, and she was so smart. Um, what I recognize now, now is that she was also traumatized in very much the same way that I was mm-hmm. as a child by a mom that was kind of emotionally, emotionally incestuous. Yeah. Just kind of like just too much. Yeah. Just too much all the time, unpredictable, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, of course we got along swimmingly at first, but that also was the same thing that ended up becoming, you know, like two magnets that have the same charge. It's like, yeah, I triggered her anxious attachment. She triggered my avoidant attachment. Like, like, you know, it just kind of. But that went on for a while. It went on for three years. Yeah. Um, but she kind of uh, saw that I was tired and she came in and very, ju- she worked in tech and she her work paid really well. Yeah. And after we'd been together for a little while, I think what triggered it was I couldn't fit into a pair of pants and I had a photo shoot and I I had like a meltdown where I was like, like a full on, I'm going insane meltdown. Yeah. And she was like, 
um, you need to take a break. Like this job is killing you. Yeah. Like, this like, um, and she she basically was like, why don't I cover the bills and just focus on stand up? And you've been wanting to write this novel, like, and you finish the novel. Let's have a deal. Like, let me just let me just get your back for a little while because like I think you're gonna lose your mind. I yeah. think you're going insane, and I think you need a break. And so I ended up taking about a year off. I did finish a draft of the French Revolution novel and I did a lot of stand-up. I ended up doing a cross-country tour with Aaliyah Janine. And by the time I got back from that, um, me and the girlfriend, the relationship had just reached a point of like, it just, she was, it was like an open relationship, but there was, there was a lot of just emotional infidelity going on. I was doing it too. Like I got wrapped up in this guy that was like a professor and she was wrapped up in this girl that was the, you know what I mean? Like there was like, it just kind of got to this point where it was like, our, like we're roommates right yeah, now. Like we're right. not, there's nothing is connecting us. Yeah. Um, and I think too, it was just like both of us realizing that we were, that we were just trauma bonded and sure. just, we were oh, just yeah. triggering each other like over and over and over uh, again. So it, it's so hard. The it, trauma bonded thing. Oh yeah. So we broke up and I was kind of didn't know if I wanted to do stand-up. I, this relationship had failed. I didn't want to be in porn anymore. Like, there was a lot going on. And one night I got... And I think you and I had had a discussion around this time where I was kind of like, I don't know what I'm doing. And you had said something to me around like, you need to be more strategic. Like, you don't have any strategy around kind of what you're doing. And it had never occurred to me that a career path might have strategy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, people always think I'm really smart, so they assume it's, that it's hard so to, they assume yeah. that I understand a lot of stuff that for them is very basic. Yeah. And it's like they don't understand that I'm autistic. It's like it's a very Well, I wasn't either. I didn't I mean, I learned it just from like, you know, chaos. Well, anyway, you gave me that hot tip. Good. <laughs> and um I don't for I don't remember if it was you or someone else, but someone had said something like well, if you you need to get on TV, and if you want to get on TV, you either do your five minutes for late night, or you write a TV sitcom and you make a vehicle for yourself. But those are the ways you do it, and like you get on TV, and then once you're on TV, then you can go on tour and do the thing. Right? Sure, the standard comic uh, uh, bible. Yes. Yeah. And so I went home one night, got really drunk. Yeah. Because I was, you know, upset about everything. Yeah. And I wrote this pilot in about four hours, that was. That is what I'm the one that you did the table read for like um, and then I put it in a drawer and forgot about it because I didn't have anyone to give it to and and I got done with it and I was like this is neither a sitcom nor good Mm. and (laughs) like nor is it nor is it fun Um, it just seemed like you needed to get it out. Yeah, but and that was just that thing where I was like, okay, well, now I have my TV pilot, so if anyone ever asks, I have it. Yeah. And I, like, went back into, um, like, I started getting writing gigs and went back into doing adults, but with this mind towards to keep accruing the writing gigs. And also the could, adult at this point is like, you know, you have almost complete control over it. Yeah, because yeah. it's like OnlyFans and stuff like that. Yeah. So I'm back in adult and I'm accruing writing gigs and working on stuff with this idea that I'll finally be able to transition out by yeah. kind of just get, letting waiting till the writing gigs just start accruing more money than the adult. Right. Um, and I ended up writing and then we went under into a pandemic. We had a little pample moose. Yeah. Yeah. Little little Panda Express, yeah. little Panera. And yeah. um 
my OnlyFans started doing really, really well, well enough that for the first time I could completely just stay home and not work. And I started writing extra hard. Um, and I became a columnist for Mel Magazine and I was doing other subsidiary stuff and just uh, really focused on by the time the pandemic was over, I wanted to just be completely done with adults. Like basically for that whole year, I didn't do any adult shoots at all, but I like officially retired. But I did the thing where I called the agent and I just was like, you know, 10 years is a long time and I think I'm done. And he was like, great. It's like, okay, well, um, it was, you know, I, it was, I was honored to be able to help and be part of what you're doing. And I know you're going to really do amazing things. And it was kind of cool. My friend I was with, like, unbeknownst to me, had gathered all of these people that I'd worked with for 10 years and made me a video that was like, whatever. Oh, like, it was like, it was like, I was sobbing. It was oh, so beautiful. Sweet. And I kind of did this, like. I don't be- okay look I don't believe in affirmations or manifesting or astrology or tarot cards but I do find that shit soothing as fuck okay yeah, okay so <laughs> it's I just find it calming yeah but I really started doing like affirmations and manifesting and kind of focusing and reading a lot of self-help stuff and like really just going hard and taking this leap of faith that like if I got rid of the safety net that other shit would happen and then in March of this year um Peter Berg slid into my DMs and was like, I read an article you wrote and do you want to talk? Yeah. And um, everything since then has been kind of insane. But the moral of the story is it's a good thing I had that pilot. Yeah. Because I met him and we were talking and then I was like, well, I did write a TV pilot and he was like, well, let me see it. And a week later, when I pulled it out, I like refurbished it a little yeah. bit. Um, and a week later, he had it in his hands. And I think that, that the fact that I was on deck like that probably had more of a positive impact on that relationship than anything else. It's like, because it just demonstrated out the gate that like... You can do the work. Or just that like, no one has ever been more prepared for an opportunity than me. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. swear to God. And then we're, now we're going to be at this weird place where it's like, we're going to all be waiting. Yeah. To see what happens. Yeah. I feel, I feel that... Um, I feel that it cannot fail. Good. I, I don't know how confident I feel in what we've done here today. I just think it's a it's a great sort of story to tell personally from your experience and also like, you know, paying your dues in these different areas in life, you know, with hardship, with trauma, you know, and and doing the work that you did and understandably getting tired of it after a certain point, yeah. but not necessarily being ashamed of it. And, yeah, and I'm never. This... I'm not ashamed of anything I've done. Well, there you go. Like, ever, you yeah. know. And I, I don't. And I think that that's. If I like. If anything, I think that if we're talking about harm reduction, like we have to stop stigmatizing the people that do this work. Like that is the biggest area of harm reduction. It's not the Swedish model. It's not arresting Johns. It's not banning porn. It's not any of that. It is getting rid of the stigma that sex workers have to face. It makes it impossible for them to leave. It makes it, you know, it, it creates so many problems that that create these scenarios in which people have to make really desperate decisions or have to do desperate things to cope. And it's like the yeah, stigma. Like the, I mean, the suicides have yeah. happened a lot in the last yeah. few years. I mean, it's 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 just. So much of it is around like all these civilians like I would never do porn like people will treat you like shit. And it's like, who are the people? 
Mm. Like the calls coming from inside the house. Like you're the one doing the harm. Like that's you. Yeah. You know, you could stop at any time by simply with like withdrawing your participation in that process. So I think the stigma is is the most harmful thing. And I, I'm absolutely not ashamed of anything that I've done at all. But, you know, it's just time to move on. And yeah, you seem grounded in that. Yeah. Ready. I mean, I finally gave up OnlyFans. That was like the last little. Yeah. That was like the last. I was like the yeah. vestigial tail. Yeah. Like, See you later. The, bye. Thank yeah. you. So it's like now it's a full. We'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Good talking to you. <laughs> oh, what? should I say something? No. There you go. Again, you can see all things Sovereign related at SovereignSire.net. Uh, also, don't forget, uh, I have tour dates and some have been added. And I know I told you about these. I can, you know, I'm going to do these occasionally. So people who want to come see me can come see me. Comedy Works in Denver, August 5th, 6th, and 7th. Uh, Stand Up Live in Phoenix, August 12th. And added a show on August 13th. Uh, Wise Guys in Salt Lake City, August 19, 20, and 21. Helium uh, in St. Louis, Missouri, September 16, 17, and 18. The Comedy Attic in Bloomington, September 30, October 1, and October 2. Okay, that's where we're at right now. I'm looking into adding more shows at Dynasty Typewriter here in Los Angeles. And there might be some things added as I move through and continue to work on this. And I might tell you, I might tell you, I will tell you, it's been exciting. It's been exciting riffing out this uh, hour because my process of discovery is being witnessed by these audiences at Dynasty and they're seeing shows they will never see again. They may never happen like they did the night they saw them again as I try to hone in on this stuff. But that feeling of sort of like, what just happened? Where did that come from? Is happening and it will continue happening. So if I'm going to be near you, come see me. You can go to WTFpod.com slash tour for tickets, uh, links to tickets. Okay, good. Now, moving on. Fonda. Cat angels everywhere.